Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John, hello. Hi, man. How's it going? It's good. Um, Feeling poorer? Well, I hope so. Well, I was going to say I'm worried about a couple of things, but one of these things is the way that I'm beginning to accept that I'm just getting poorer. Are you doing the same? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the guy from the Bank England told me to do it, so I, I might as well just lie yeah. down and deal with it. And what with their record of being absolutely right and their instructions being something that you should always follow, I've resolved never to ask for a pay rise again, just to get poorer and poorer and poorer. So as to help the Bank of England meet their inflation targets, because, you know, those poor guys, someone's got to help them out, right? So is exactly. that if you, me, all our listeners, never ask for a pay rise again because it's not fair on the men at the Bank of England. Yeah. They I have mean, to write those letters. Well. Yeah, you ask for a pay rise, <laughs> he has to write a letter to the Chancellor. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? <laughs> Unacceptable. 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 So all you people out there, just take it on the chin. You're 10, 10% what? How much poorer than you were last year? 10.1%, uh, I think. Exactly. <sighs> <laughs> that is, I've got a bit of paper in front of me, actually. That's about 600 pounds per household poorer than you were this time last year. I, I mean, well, there you go. It's, it's not that much. You can take it in the chair. Yeah. Anyway, so what Mr. Pill, the chief economist at the Bank of England, was trying to say, I mean, what he wasn't saying is, uh, by the way, here at the Bank of England, we have only one job and it's to keep inflation in check. And our job, our only job is to make inflation hit around 2% a year because that's what we need to oil the wheels of an economy. We dedicate ourselves to that. Boy, oh boy, have we really messed it up. Looks like our models don't work. Really sorry, guys. Let me do everything I possibly can to make that work out for you. What he's actually saying is general population this is your fault because you won't accept where we are and you keep asking for more money and that's why we have inflation. Nothing to do with me, mate. Am I being unfair? I am. I am. I'm being unfair. John, John is much better at moral stuff than I am. I'm really sorry. I've been unfair to the Bank of England. I'd like to take it all back. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Mr. Bill. You're not being unfair, but the, I think the problem with this stuff is that, well, I mean, actually, there's a, there's a whole load of problems in a really clumsy way. He's sort of turned around and saying inflation is going up because, and I think that the fundamental problem here is just that he is wrong about what's caused this inflation. And whether that's deliberate or not is another issue. But he's basically saying, so gas prices have gone up. So there's an external shock. The whole of Britain is having to pay more for energy. That means we're poorer. Therefore, all that's happening now is there's a fight over how it gets distributed. And therefore, like me and you, ask for more wages. So our employer then turns around and puts its prices up. 
So me and you ask for more wages, an employer puts his prices up. And it's that kind of, they call it pass the parcel, um, where you get an inflationary spiral because nobody wants to take the hit. But overall, the whole economy is poorer. And my main, I mean, like I said, I've got a fundamental problem with that, which is that I don't think it's correct. Um, but there's also the problem of, although lots of people are turning and saying, well, no, you're not being entirely fair to Mr. Pill, as I just did there. The fact is, the Bank of England job is, is a comms job. You need to be good at communicating to do it. I mean, it's not, you know, this is not, and this is not new. I mean, Alan Greenspan used to go on about this all the time, and Mervyn King talks about it a lot as well. It's like, you have to be aware that, I mean, for God's sake, you are the second in charge of the Bank of England during an inflationary crisis. Whatever you say on whatever podcast, regardless of how obscure it is or what country it's in, is going to get picked up and it's going to be listened to and it's going to be... This is, hang on, I need to interrupt him. This is not an obscure podcast. Well, no, I don't mean our podcast. Our podcast is, oh. is you know, very high profile, but uh, the, the podcast on which he was speaking, uh, I mean, actually, Columbia Law School might get annoyed at me if I say that it's, it's obscure, but it's certainly not one I'd heard of. Um, but anyway, this, this is my point. It's like, if you open your mouth and you're at the Bank of England just now, you should be prepared to see headlines based on that, and therefore you should be thinking, well, how am I coming across just now? And if you're coming across as a conker, uh-huh. uh-huh. then... Be aware of it. Yes, and be aware of the fact that, you know, presumably uh, here all people must know that inflation is very much about inflation expectations because it's inflation expectations that drive our wage demands. You would think, you would think, although I'm starting to wonder because, you know, it, it, it took the central bank so long to start reacting to this and most of them were just following the Fed because that's what they do. Um, you know, they sat there and like, oh, no, if Jerome Powell's doing something, we better do something as well. I mean, I'm not sure that... I, I, I lack the confidence that this lot actually do have a proper grip or an open-mindedness about what's caused this. You know, I, I think that actually maybe they genuinely believe that the vast majority of this is down to the war in Ukraine, even though all of the inflation happened before that. And certainly blaming it all on kind of energy prices going up is it kind of points to that. And I think that's that's the more fundamental issue I've got with this. That they don't realise or refuse to realise that it was the, the vast level of money printing that has driven a lot of this. Yeah. Is what you mean. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. You know, guess what, guys? I mean, it was partly your fault. Partly, eh? Well, um, that's been kind. But it does seem, doesn't it, that there's an extraordinary amount of groupthink across central banking across the world. They all appear to be all using the same kind of model. That model doesn't work, but no one gets around to changing that model. I mean, I've, although I feel bad talking about central bankers like this, because you and I know that they're much more highly educated than, than we are, and hopefully much cleverer than we are, they're much higher IQs, you know, they must be. They're central bankers for a reason, right? Um, but somehow, but possibly it shows us that However clever you are, how well-educated you are, however numerate you are, however good you are at math, something to remember, Rishi, you can still get caught up in groupthink. Well, I think the problem is you just believe what's convenient to believe at the time. Um, and I mean, I've said this before about central banks, is that they're like anyone else. They'll take the path of the least resistance. And for a long time, you know, it's been quite nice to be a central banker because all you needed to do was either print money or cut interest rates and everyone was quite happy because those are those are happy things to do. That's giving out stuff. And now that they're having to raise interest rates, that is not a, a fun thing to do. Um, 
and it makes you unpopular. And everyone's saying, oh, why do interest rates need to go up? Now, what's the point when putting up mortgage rates to tackle inflation? And you can say, well, actually, yeah, you know, that's not necessarily an unfair point. But in that case, why did we lower interest rates so much, thinking that that was going to make the economy better? You know, I, I just, we like to have it both ways, but uh, you can't have your cake and eat it, as I believe Boris Johnson would say. You kind of can if you're a central banker, because you know what? If you've got an RPI-linked defined benefit pension, you aren't getting any poorer. There's a small group of people out there who are not getting any poorer. And the majority of those people are have, uh, well, public sector pensions, because even private sector defined benefit pensions tend to have an inflation cap of some kind, and lots of them are capped at sort of 3%. So there'll be a lot of private sector pensioners who, even though they have a defined benefit pension, my dream, by the way, as regular listeners will know, my dream, um, even those people will be getting poorer. There's a very small group of people in the UK at the moment who are not getting poorer. It's true. And I mean, it's, you know, I don't think people think enough about their pensions to understand this, even the central banks. But, you know, the fact that the Bank of England has the vast majority of its pension fund, you know, it was invested in index-linked bonds, um, you know, it does sort of like think, well, uh, somebody knew something somewhere along the line. Someone had a sneaking suspicion those Bank of England models weren't working quite right. Yeah, clearly it wasn't Mr. Pill. Um now, listen, I just want to mention one more thing before before we uh, move on to talking to our rather brilliant guest today. And that is that, you know, you and I have been writing for so long about the cheapness of the UK market and how everyone must pile in because there's lots of cheap stuff in there. And we've also been saying, and listen up, guys, if you don't get in there and buy UK equities, somebody else will, and it's going to be private equity and you won't like it. And that is really happening. And people keep talking about how it will happen, but it is happening. You know, there are so many bids coming in for UK companies. It's beginning to get slightly disturbing, isn't it? You know, I was speaking to a fund manager the other day in the mid and small cap space who told me that um, the biggest risk for him or the biggest risk that he feels is that lots of the companies in his portfolio are going to get bought out by private equity at a price that is way too low relative to the value he would expect them to, to build up to over the coming years. So there's a genuine risk here to the UK market that not only are we, is our equity market shrinking, but it's shrinking at the wrong price. I think that's a really good point. Um, and on the one hand, you know, I, I sort of say in the short term as an investor, that's an opportunity because at the end of the day, if someone else is going to value this stuff properly, you may as well take advantage of it. But in the long run, yeah, it's, it's a real pain in the neck. And I, I know that um, lots of, in the old days, kind of lots of micro-cap fund managers used to complain about that with, with AIM and things like that, where any half-decent company would either get taken private by its founders uh, before it, it got to its massive growth stage um, or get bought out by something else. And it was always a frustration because, okay, you made a quick bump on the bid, but in the long run, you then had to find another decent company and doing that is hard um, and the problem is I, I, I don't know I mean you've written a book about this which has a lots of good ideas on how to resolve this but um, I, I don't know how <laughs> we end up getting to a situation where there is that environment where the public markets, because at the moment they're not competing with the private markets effectively especially not at the small cap end it's better for but small they are, companies I mean, they to... are in the US. 
you know, the stock market in the U.S. is not shrinking in the same way ours is. Companies still list in the U.S., uh, you know, and we we might argue about how the American market is too expensive and the U.K. market is too cheap, et cetera, et cetera. And, but nonetheless, if you're going to list, why would you do it in the U.K., not in the U.S.? List in the US, you can get double evaluation. And as uh, people keep telling me, your CEO can also get properly paid. So if you're the CEO of a, of a tech company in the UK and you're thinking, well, I want a list, you've got two choices. You can go list in the US, get a significantly higher premium, and then pay yourself four or five times what you would in the UK. Um, and not be subject to all the sort of rules about not uh, having to stay on the board for nine years and then leave and all this kind of thing, uh, worries about founder control, um, all of which you have in the UK. Or you can go to the U.S. and have, have none of that worry and a whole pile more money. So what do you do? Of course, you go to the U.S. So there's a lot of work to be done in the U.K. to try and make our, our market attractive again. I think both of us will write columns on that. What do you think? I, I think that's good because, I mean, I agree. I can see why it's happening. I can see why people, you know, of course you would go to the U.S. if you had the chance. And it's much, much easier now than it once was. But at the same time... Are there certain things about the US that we really don't want to follow on, like founders having all of the voting shares, regardless of how much of the actual capital they own, and things like that? So it's it is it's a it's a really interesting topic. I think it's one that's kind of it will run and run and run. Well, it may run and run and run, but we can't let it run too long because without. Um deep, liquid and active public markets, shareholder democracy dies and it takes a little bit of democratic capitalism with it. So we don't want this run to run and run. We want it to run just for a little while and then be sorted out. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Marin Somerset Webb. This week, a conversation with Baroness Danbisa Moyer. Now, Danbisa is extremely busy, but a few of things that she does, she's a global economist, she speaks all over the place, she's an author, she's written a couple of fascinating books that I insist you go away and buy and read. She serves on a couple of boards of listed companies, including 3M, Chevron, and Condé Nast, and she serves on the investment committee at Oxford University. So, super interesting. Dambisa, thank you so much for joining us today. I hugely appreciate it. Thank you. Good to see you. You and I, we've talked quite a lot before, and I think the last time we, we talked properly was just after your uh, your 2018 book, Edge of Chaos, came out. Yes, that sounds right. Yeah. And I have this feeling looking around us now that we're no longer on the edge anymore. We've slightly slipped off the edge. <laughs> Everything, you know, since we last talked, so many things have changed. You know, the financial world has changed, the political world has changed, the, the peace dividend that we lived with so long for so long is gone. Um, globalization is slightly you know turned around. It feels like deglobalization is is well underway. So so much has changed. And when we look at that reflected in our oh sorry, I forgot to mention the pandemic. There was that as well. Um and we see that reflected in it in our growth rates. And, you know, obviously, I believe, and I think you believe as well, that economic growth is the most important thing we should strive for because everything else comes from that in the end. But yet we're, we're not really seeing it, are we? Everything around us is fairly sluggish and it's hard to see how that can change. And in the UK in, in particular, things feel just a little bit more sluggish than in other places. Is, is that right? 
Well, I think the most important thing is to put these things in context. You're right, you and I spoke some time ago, and since then we've had inflation come back, we've had a war, we've had a pandemic, um, and uh, you know we continue to grapple with a whole list of other um, geopolitical challenges that you've talked about, rise of China, deglobalization, etc. But putting this in context, even before the pandemic hit in earnest in 2020, Many economists, policymakers, academicians were already worried about the structural growth decline. That's to say that we were worried that growth was trending downwards, again, before the pandemic. Um, and um, organizations as varied as um, the World Bank and the uh, Congressional Budget Office in the United States, as well as many economists uh, in the UK and elsewhere, were worried that actually the engines of growth um, had started to stall um, in the post-financial uh, crisis era, but even before the pandemic. And in that sense, the pandemic was really an accelerant to um, a lot of the problems um, that were already foreseen. You know, there were worries about debt, um, the sheer amount of debt that the global economy was was carrying. Obviously, that's become even worse um, post the pandemic. Worries about um, demographics, uh, you know, in terms of the population growth around the world, that has also become rather problematic with disorderly migration that we continue to see, not just in uh, places like the United States, but also very much so in the UK. Um, we were also worried about things like um, the, the advent of technology, what that was going to do to jobs. Again, with AI, um, we're now in a world where that is becoming much more of a, a, of a, a realistic situation. So I, I think, Maren, just to, to maybe um, to, cat, to put this into one sentence, um, the, the great worry we have and we continue to have, and just in the last couple of weeks, the World Bank and IMF have had their spring meetings and they have uh, published reports saying that the growth trends over the next 10 years will continue to go downwards. What do we mean by downwards? And this is my one sentence, um, that growth is going to be below that magic 3% number. We need to be growing by 3% per year in order to double per capita incomes in a generation. But developed and developing countries all over the world are um, way below that number and struggling um, to, to attain that number. Um, perhaps one last thing before I send it back to you. Um, you know, I think a, a motivating framework, not only in identifying where the problems lie um, for growth, but also thinking about how do we think about solutions, um, I think is going back to basics um, and, and appreciating that um, a lot of the modeling that's been done um, around growth, certainly in the, in, over the past century, has identified three key drivers of growth, which are capital, how much money you have, labor, the quality and the quantity of your workforce, and the third item being productivity, um, which has always been a, a catch-all for everything from rule of law, issues around regulation and taxes, which I know we'll come to in a moment. Um, but really, that is the framework from which we should identify the problems in the UK and around the world, and then start to think about solutions.
Mm. Well, one of the main things to look at here is is supply of labor, isn't it? And we can get onto productivity in a minute, but we've been through this lengthy period pretty much uh, since China was ascended to the WTO and became a major part of the of the global economy. We've lived in a world, and particularly in the UK because of our mass immigration from Eastern Europe, where we've been able to rely on a steady and sort of seemingly infinite supply of global labor to take on every job you might think of. And that is definitely reversing. We see it in every major economy. We see people talking about a shortage of labor. And that's partly because of a falling supply of people overall, but also a falling supply of people prepared to work. That is correct. But also related to that, um, it's not just people's wish to work, but ability to work. Um, if you recall, you and I are now of a, a certain age, we'll remember the era of Terry, Terry Leahy and others who were talking about um, needs, no education, employment or training, there was massive discussion around, uh, uh, for those of you who weren't around, I believe uh, Terry ter- Lee was, was at Tesco, if I'm not mistaken, but Stuart mm-hmm. Rose was at, was at Marks and, and Spencer back in those days. And they, at that time, were talking about a skill shortage. There was a massive mismatch back then. Um, you know, frankly, is serving in the boardrooms in which I serve, um, I think that the, the sort of bigger discussion now is, you know, in the here and now, you're right, there's a skill shortage. But there's a bigger question coming very quickly, which is what are we going to do with the labor that will exist, educated and uneducated, or I should say skilled and unskilled, um, in a world where it seems we're going to need less labor? Um, yeah, I mean, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm hinting at, the AI uh, revolution, which by most calibrations, people like Elon Musk or uh, Bill Gates, who are very steeped in the, the technology debate, is going to be as at least as transformational as the internet. And these AI models are, are really much less uh, human, uh, uh, you know, in terms of sh- uh, labor, labor required. Um, and we have to start thinking it from a policy framework, but from a business framework also, starting to think about what happens to that labor, because it may be a shortage in the here and now, but I think there's a bigger societal question that's emerging as we move away from this sort of dependency on labor markets. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
That's interesting. I mean, this 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 is the kind of question that comes up every generation or so, doesn't it? We're making these huge technological leaps forward. What's going to happen to our labor? But but even though we always ask this question, the answer always provides itself in the in the in the sense that jobs exist that you and I would never have imagined could have existed uh, 20, 30 years ago when we were being told by our school careers service that if we like to read books, we should be librarian librarians. Remember that, or gardeners, or whatever it was. And um, those career services now have lists of jobs that simply didn't exist, and we had no concept could exist uh, 20 years ago. I mean, there are now universities in the UK dedicated almost entirely to gaming, for example. Uh, this is entirely new. So when I look at this kind of thing, I wonder if, if um, we should not worry about the employment side of it, because in a way, there's a, you know, people make their own jobs somehow. Uh, but what we should think about is the productivity side of it. In that sense, it could be our great savior. The thing that has been our, our big problem, particularly in the UK, where we've got used to uh, having uh, low wage people do all the jobs that may be elsewhere, they may they may be using more machinery, robotics, etc. for uh, productivity has been very low. And if AI does all the things that it is promised to do, our productivity problem could could just go away. Well, so, you know, you've, you've said a number of things. I'm less sanguine than you are, because I do think some of the AI modeling that I'm seeing um, in not just in uh, in sort of, shall we call it uh, a lower skill jobs, but it really it, it, the, the ability to disrupt business models, even for established corporations, which are probably going to need less capital. You know, one person with a, a machine will be able to do the work of, of 40,000. It's sort of the the, the, the view. You know, I, I think that's, that is certainly we can go back and forth and debate, but, you know, we, we should not lose sight of the fact that what has bailed us out in the historical context that you're just alluding to was that people did have skills. And what what is going to be demanded of us now as labor in the future is much more of a skilled workforce in science, in technology, um, ability to run these models. And that's where I think that risk um, becomes much more pronounced than than in the past. But to your point of productivity, and I think, again, just to frame it um, for for the listeners here, um, I mentioned that growth is a function of capital, labor, and productivity. Productivity explains about 60% of why one country grows and another one doesn't. So it's crucially important that we have productivity. And it's essentially how we're able to transform the capital and labor into growth. How do we convert this into growth? And this is one of the big worries because we've lived in a technological era for 20 years. And there was a lot of expectation that living in a world of computers and the PC and uh, iPhone was going to drive greater productivity. But you and I both know that actually productivity has declined and continues to be very challenged um, in both developed and developing countries. And so you're right that, um, you know, I think a lot of us are, are hopefully quite optimistic about productivity gains being an offset to job losses in, a, in an AI world. But for now, we have not seen those productivity gains even with more nascent types of technologies over the last 20 years. So I think it would be somewhat foolhardy for policymakers to sit back and say, oh, well, we think technology is going to bail us out. That has not been the case. And if, if the past is a predictor of the future, we could end up with a situation where we're losing a lot of jobs, which again is heavily forecasted from the World Economic Forum and others, um, even though there are potential net gains uh, to your point earlier, but we might not just see a loss in jobs, we might also see uh, not the productivity gains to offset the growth that we need. Can we connect this failure of productivity levels to improve and super low interest rates over the last 20 years? 
uh, we've had this environment where we've developed extraordinary technologies that we look at and we think could be used to increase productivity. But perhaps because of the uh, availability of easy money and the lack of stress and pressure that comes from correctly priced money, so interest rates at, at reasonable levels, we've used that technology badly. So we've done all sorts of things that add nothing. I give you uh, TikTok dancing nurses um, and the, the endless looking at cat pictures, et cetera, et cetera. We've used that technology, but we've used it in, in, in ways that don't bring us anything as a, as a society. But with interest rates rising and that kind of uh, non-useful economic activity possibly no longer being, being uh, possible, might we see a shift? Might rising interest rates be the thing that bring us the productivity we've been after. And we're already seeing, for example, business failures at, at four-year highs in the UK, which is terrible in one way and slightly encouraging in another in that we do need non-productive businesses to disappear. Yeah, look, I, I think you're you're absolutely right that being in a world where we actually have interest rates at, at, at the correct equilibrium rate will definitely wash out some of the bad capital allocation decisions that we have seen. But I think it's also uh, uh, quite, a, quite a, a risky proposition. First of all, the, the reason rates were low were, were in response to uh, market dislocations. We had a financial crisis and then we've had a pandemic and that's being remedied right now. But I think there are more fundamental questions about where will capital be allocated in a high interest rates environment. And at this stage, it's not clear to me that uh, that will necessarily lead to higher productivity gains. Uh, I would like it to. And as you rightly pointed out earlier, technology has bailed us out somewhat, as have labor markets, not just China coming into the World Trade Organization and bringing in all that into the global market, but also the convergence of emerging market countries. But add to that, if you go back into World War II era, certainly women coming into the workforce was also a massive boost for growth because we started to bring in not just uh, more uh, workers, but also more uh, demand for, uh, for products. So look, there are lots of moving parts here. I think that uh, you've picked on one plausible explanation for productivity declines, which is the low interest rate environment. But I could list out three or four other ones. I've you know, published papers on this, and I don't think we actually yet know with, with specificity, you know, uh, in terms of balancing which one has the most influence, what exactly the problem is with, uh, with technology but, but, uh, or with uh, productivity uh, not responding to technology as, as much as we would have liked to see. Okay, let's talk about the, the UK a little. And um, there's lots of talk about the UK being uh, uh, growing more slowly than elsewhere and about us not getting back to our pre-pandemic levels at the same speed of other countries. Uh, is that actually true? And if it is, what do you think is driving it? Let, let me just start by saying that, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of structural problems that are true across the board. So I already mentioned that many countries, developed and developing countries, have been dealing with the issue of structural declines in growth. Um, really, if I take a step back and I think, what is it in the UK that makes it more unique or, or puts it in a unique position to be grappling with the, these, uh, with the, with the post-pandemic period in a way that's different from other countries? I think there are a handful of things. So we could, we could sit here and say COVID was felt by all. The current war uh, implications are being felt by all. Um, many countries have debt to GDP ratios that are incredibly high, sometimes even higher than, uh, than the UK. And you could also argue that everybody's facing inflation. But what makes the UK situation unique? 
and this is not going to be a surprise, but certainly in one word, it would be un- uncertainty. Where is that uncertainty emerged from? Brexit, absolutely. And I should just be clear that I, um, although I spent quite a considerable time writing articles before 2016 saying that we should remain, you know, that becomes immaterial. When the decision was made, we ought to have gone headlong into making sure, and by we, I I think society, but also policymakers as well as business leaders, we should have gone headlong into making the country as successful as possible in this new regime. And I think we have not done that um, for a whole host of reasons. But there's also not just uncertainty from Brexit, there's also been enormous uncertainty from the political environment, partly because of response to the pandemic and war and inflation that I touched on earlier, but also uniquely political volatility, um, you know, obviously most manifestly what we saw last year with three prime ministers in in just several months. And these, what is the consequence of uncertainty of Brexit and of the political environment? Absolutely less investment. And, you know, maybe as a a finer point, back to something you talk, we touched on earlier, which is deglobalization. The, the Brexit move was, an, in a sense, deglobalization. And I think um, what has happened, if you look at the data, is that we have not been able to yet fully capture the 80% replacement with free trade agreements that we had thought we would have by now. I was uh, you know, part and parcel with the, uh, in the DIT, Department of Trade, Uh, international trade. So I'm very much aware that in particular, just to, again, put a finer point on it, we've not yet done a deal with the United States. And that alone is about 20% uh, of of trade. I know we're all working furiously um, to get that done. But just as a specific example of, of bringing the uncertainty that came from Brexit, the uncertainty that's come from the political volatility, we have not yet been able to uh, to sort of fill in the gaps, both in terms of trade and investment, but also in the mind's eye of investors, we've not yet convinced them that uh, the UK is a place where you can generate real returns above the cost of capital. Yeah, and a lot of this is people looking in and going, well, I'm not 100% convinced yet, is, is when you ask uh, international investors, it's hard for them to put their finger on exactly what it is. They just know that it's not quite the same and they feel uncertain about it. Correct. And it, look, there's a lot more regulatory um, morass that needs to be dealt with. Okay, we say we're now out of the EU. Great. Well, what's the new regime um, for everything from the green economy, but also the financial services economy? How do we think about rebuilding the UK to be purpose built um, in an environment where the new rules and the new uh, landscape is is not yet clear? Mm. Do you expect, I just want to go briefly back to the, to the global economy and deglobalization. I'm, I'm assuming that that's something that, that you expect to continue with uh, the rise of protectionism globally and the ongoing, uh, well, you can call it a cold war or trade war, whatever you like, but that's not going away, is it? It's not. It really isn't. And I mean, I think if anything, it's accelerating. I, you know, after Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary in the United States, made a, a statement that seemed to be taking the air out of the, the, the stress between China and the U.S. See, there's a bigger statement coming from uh, the U.S. saying that uh, South Korea should not sell microchips to, uh, to China. I mean, these are very, very aggressive moves, um, both by China and the United States. I know because I spend a lot of time in investing space that there are many American investors who have received letters from the government saying we would, do not want you to invest uh, in China. 
This is true for endowments and uh, other pools of capital. I don't think this is uh, just about trade. It's about capital flows. I think the immigration flows will start to see a lot more of people um, leaving these different regions. I've seen it in, I was just in Singapore, um, a lot of uh, much more aggressive uh, pro-Singapore, anti, I'm, I'm using shorthand, anti-immigrant, uh, anti-expat type uh, type moves. I think we're going to continue to see it in the breakdown of multilateralism. These are the big pillars, trade, capital, immigration, um, you know, uh, technology, uh, multilateralism. These are the big pillars of globalization and all of them are, are certainly under threat. Are there positives in there for these sectors, for example, of the UK economy that were the big losers from globalization? So our industrial sector, for example, and uh, you know the areas of the Midlands, et cetera, that used to be very, uh, very globally active and haven't been as a result of, of long-term globalization. Is there a possibility that we might see a reindustrialization of the heartlands of the UK, for example? So I, I think the, the, um, th- that's a complicated uh, question for, for two reasons. Um, the world has moved on. So when we say a rejuvenation in the industrial heartland, even if they talk about places like the United States, um, you know, the world is no longer an industrial-led uh, economy in the way that it was um, 20 or 40 years ago when globalization really took off. So the one piece of it is, do we even want to go back to that? Uh, is that really, really the way the world economy is shaped? And you know, just to give you some statistics, um, you know, we now many developed economies have about eighty percent of the economy in services um, and eighteen percent, twenty percent in uh, in manufacturing. But that that has basically flipped. If you went back in history, you had sixty percent of people working in agriculture and working in uh, in manufacturing, but that's been declining precipitously over the last uh, generation. So point one is what when we say we want to reindustrialize, what are we really talking about, especially within a technology space? But the other point is that we've lost a lot of these skills. Um, you know, one of the things that has been talked about quite a lot is that, you know, in, in the UK, in with Brexit happening, we had to go back to the drawing board and, and think about negotiation, thinking about uh, uh, free on board and imports and exports and how do you calculate all this stuff. That was it's a lost skill. Um, you know, it, it's it, we've had 40, 50 years where we didn't have to think about having these unique contracts in that sort of uh, um, a way that we, we had many, many years ago when we were a separate uh, country um, and, and not part of the, the, the sort of EU construct. Um, a free trade construct. And so I think these are two questions. Do we want to go back to, what does that mean? Are we going to be back to pick and, and shovel, uh, you know, to use shorthand? But second, secondarily, what do we do with this, the missed skills? We've had 40 years, people have not been investing in that skill. We've been doing something else. And so I don't think it's as easy as we might like it to be. And reskilling and retraining is with an older population, as you and I both know, is a very challenging thing, no matter how much we'd like to see it. I think I could reskill if I really tried. <laughs> yeah. Not quite sure as what, but I could give it a go. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, well, let's talk a bit about then what, what can the UK do? I mean, here we are in this sort of slightly difficult global situation. We have our own domestic problems. Our economy is grotesquely unbalanced. Uh, we have this insane level of debt. Uh, how, can we, how can we build a better future? You say rebuilding Britain or making Britain from the beginning again. What, what, what can we do? What is politically and economically plausible, as opposed to what would what would you and I really like, which I suspect is probably not politically or economically plausible. <laughs> what can we actually do here to improve things and to give the UK the growth it needs? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, rather than give you a laundry list of 10 things, which I could do, uh, I'm going to point to my, my maiden speech in the, in the House of Lords and say, look, there are two things that we should be thinking as a frame of mind, which is to say, you're not going to grow if you have high taxes and high regulation, impossible. You have to be one or the other um, in, in these types of environments. Now, I, I, you know, it's, it's the proverbial teaching policymakers to suck eggs. They know that. And, and I think there is a lot of effort and people are leaning in to, to recalibrate the tax regime and recalibrate the, uh, the regulatory regime. But we are not going to be competitive if we have high taxes, which we do, and high regulation, which we do. And so just in terms of really low hanging fruit, go and just do these two things, focus on these two things. That's what I would do. Everything else in terms of investment in infrastructure and thinking about uh, new sectors and how Britain can lead in the bio uh, and technological spheres, all that stuff is, is, is fantastic. And we want to see all those sorts of things, thinking more again less about the industrial economy of the past, but thinking about the technological economies of the future, that's all wonderful. But before you get any, even to that place, people need to feel like they can invest in an economy. They can feel like there's a, a lot of visibility and in policymaking. It's not going to be time inconsistent um, where they put in a policy today and five years later, they decide to unwind it and change it. You know, those types of things are very unattractive um, especially in a world which is deglobalizing, deglobalizing, and where the, uh, the the rules are much more attractive elsewhere. Um, the, it, it just take, take the green economy. The the United States, um, not just their chip announcement, but also the announcement around inflation reduction, really has has made many European countries sit up and say, "Why are we investing in Europe? We should be investing in the United States." I mean, that is not the sort of thing. Uh, we should we should just sort of navel gaze at. I mean, we, where is the response? And if you look at the responses, they've been pretty weak uh, thus far, not just from the, the, the UK, but uh, across Europe as well. And so it's those kind of things that are not going to get anywhere. People always feel 
that um, they, the first thing they think about when they think about investing in the UK or Europe is tax and regulation. Um, I, I maybe just one last final point, Marin, if I may. The other thing is, as we think about these complex things, like like the green economy, uh, as a specific example, I think Europeans, and I'm afraid I'm going to put ourselves as uh, Brits in there, uh, we tend to be very rules-based. Um, this is the rule. This is what you, everybody has to abide by. The U.S. tends to be much more principles-based. And I think um, on balance um, for businesses, understanding we want to get to net zero without these being hard and fast rules gives many more degrees of freedom to think about innovating to those um, to those goals as opposed to, you know, risk. When you have these rules, you start to risk mitigate so aggressively. And I think that means that you get less innovation, less job opportunity. I was just looking at a statistic um, in the past decade, the U.S. has doubled um, it's uh, it, the size of its market cap has doubled as compared to uh, to Europe. Um, and a lot of that is because there's a lot of innovation. People are interested in all sectors, biotech. It's not just in, in cars. It's also in uh, in uh, um, in food production. It's in pharmaceuticals, um, all that type of, of motivating um, the, the business community to work uh, hand in hand with government and uh, the, the third sector in trying to find solutions, I think, leads much better for an economy than risk mitigating um, and thinking about downside risks only. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because I think you'd be hard pressed to find very many people who would disagree that we should do something about our, our sort of fairly overwhelming regulatory burden and about our tax burden. But every time you talk about cutting any taxes, everyone gets hysterical about the debt and about our deficit, etc. And say, well, you know, we have to we have to deal with that before we can cut taxes. So it's a little bit chicken and egg, isn't it? And it's the same with the regulations. Yeah. And look, let's see what happens. I mean, we're definitely in a high tax environment with that argument that you've just laid out. That we, we need to pay our obligations and we need to be in more balanced budgets, etc. That's reasonable for sure. But there is absolutely an expectation that at some point before too long, we need to get ahead of this. Otherwise, the, the what we're missing out on is people are still making capital allocation decisions. They are still investing and they're not going to sit around and wait for the UK to decide when it's going to cut its taxes. Um, if it doesn't happen relatively soon, people will decide to invest in, in other countries and other regions. And we are seeing some of that already. Yeah, interesting. Can I just ask you to finish up, Dambisa, by saying, and this is, a, it might not be easy, but let's give it a go anyway, by saying the most optimistic thing you can think of about the UK economy. What are our big positives? Location, for one. I mean, it really, it's a, this, a central location. It absolutely has a, uh, a great uh, intellectual base, which for, for the AI the sort of future world scenarios and technology and biotech and pharma, et cetera, which, which I touched on a moment ago, we're, we've got a better hand than many other countries. I mean, I think the whole leapfrogging that we saw from emerging markets, that's a big at risk because they don't have the ability to leapfrog because of the technological and the sort of uh, education background. We have that in the UK um, and that needs to be fostered. Um, I do also think that there's a lot of scope to do much more in terms of orderly migration. Um, really, there's a lot of reasons people want to live in the UK, why they want to invest in the UK. But a lot of that has to come from understanding and having proper plans around orderly migration and thinking much more strategically, I think, than uh, reactionary in a, in a reactionary way, um, which, uh, you know, for a whole host of reasons, we've ended up in that situation. 
Okay, thank you. So the future can be very, very bright. We just have to grab the opportunities that we've already got sitting, waiting to be taken. Absolutely. Dambisa, thank you very much. And I'm going to put in the podcast notes the link to your maiden speech, which I've listened to and I think everybody else should as well. So that will be there. And listeners, please do click on that and listen to it because you'll get more of Dambisa's ideas there. Um, Thank you, Dambisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Hugely appreciated. And everybody else, thank you for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate it, review it, and subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And do make sure that those reviews are positive because the better the reviews, the more listeners we get and the more likely you are to have people of Dambisa's calibre on my podcast. So rate positively. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks, of course, to Dan B. Samoyo and to John Stefik. And of course, our weekly reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes. And as I say every week, you won't regret it. It's very, very good. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.